We're going to read from Psalm chapter 1. We're in this series, and it's, it's not a terribly original series because a lot of churches do this over the summer. They, they spend time in the Psalms because they recognize people are away at holidays and visiting family and doing different things, and your attendance at church can be a bit more erratic over the summer. Um, but the Psalms allows us to hold a sense of series, but also individual sermons that you can come and really, we hope, enjoy and be, be blessed by. So I'm going to read from Psalm, Psalm 1, just the, the very first one. Um, I kind of want to go back into the Psalms, like there's so much in them, but I'm always blown away by the fact that for about 3,000 years, people using different languages in different parts of the world have used these words are very, very close variations of these words to pray and to sing and to worship and to encounter and to be with God. It is the most remarkable thing. I'm 43 and I think I'm ancient and people have been using this for 3,000 years. It's incredible. It's really humbling. So we come humbly before God's word today and we come hungrily before God's word because even though these words are 3,000 years old, the author, who is the Holy Spirit, is present with us, taking these words and speaking them to us tonight. So it's as if, even though they're 3,000 years old, it's as if they're being spoken by God tonight just to you and just to me and just to us. So listen now for God's word. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Love this psalm. Love this psalm. We'll get into it in a second. I want to play a game with you for a second. I want you to think of, don't say it out loud because it might get really embarrassing, but think of the opposite word to what or thing to what I say to you, Okay. What could possibly go wrong? So if I said fat, you would think, don't say it out loud, it's going to get embarrassing. It's a trick. It's like Simon says, you're going to be out if you do it that way. If I say Protestant, you think, uh, see, I would love to know what you were thinking. <laughs> if I say think tall, you think, if I think Presbyterian, you think, I'm not the opposite of Presbyterian. If I think DUP, you think, I play this game with you because uh, we have three kids and our middle kid, Archie, who many of you know, um, who has different learning difficulties that make behavioral challenges in him. His life is an opposite game. Archie, put your shoes on. I want to wear sandals today. Archie, it's time to get up. No, I stay in bed. Archie, you go on the bus today to school? No, I want to go in mommy's car. Okay, we'll go in mommy's car. Now I want to go on the bus. Well, if Weedabix for breakfast, I want toast. There's toast. I want Weedabix. I mean, kid you not, 400 times every day, it's the opposite to what we 
suggest to him or think he should be doing. It's the opposite. It's the stage in life he's at. And I tell you that because this psalm is uh, it's framed to us in polar opposites. So Psalm 1 is a standalone psalm by itself. Some people think Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 should be merged together. I'm happy to take them separately as most contemporary versions of the Bible give them to us. But Psalm 1 is also the introductory book to the Psalter, and it kind of gives us the flavor and the theme for the rest of the book of Psalms. And and what it does here is it, it kind of gives us these two polarized opposites, the blessed and the wicked. Maybe your Bible says something slightly different, but the NIV, the one we use in church, um, the Northern Irish version, talks about the blessed and the wicked. And like, I guess that can feel a bit judgy, a bit offensive, because not everybody maybe feels blessed who's a Christian. Not everybody, you would say, would you say everybody's wicked who's not a Christian? Is that... You know, there's certainly some good people. My dad, when he became a Christian 15 or so years ago, before he became a Christian, he was, I would say he was the best non-Christian that I knew. Uh, really kind, really generous, really helpful, really good living, but didn't know Jesus. And so wasn't a Christian. What's helpful to understand is to understand these polarized opposite language of blessed and wicked. It's not talking from our perspective. It's not statements about morality. It's not saying there are people who are blessed who are morally good and people who are wicked who are morally bad because the reality is we're all sinful. So by a moral standard, we could say we're all wicked. It sounds a bit harsh, um, but we could say we're all wicked. What this language is, is doing, it's It's showing us, us, through God's eyes. It's how God sees us. Essentially, what he's talking about is there are people who are inside his covenant, and there are people who are outside his covenant. There are people who are in relationship with him, and people who are not in relationship with him. There are people who are blessed and have been covered in his grace, and there are people who have not been. It's not a statement about moral goodness and moral wickedness. It's saying there are people who are blessed, and there are people who are wicked because of their standing before God. And the Bible does this all the time. It uses this kind of polarized language all the time. It talks about the lost and the found. That's kind of offensive language as well, until you realize it's from God's perspective as he looks at us that there are people out there who are lost from God and there are people who God has found and brought into his family. There are people who are orphaned and people who are adopted. There are people who are children of darkness and people who are children of light. There are people who are slaves and people who have been freed, redeemed. And here in the Psalms, there is the blessed and there is the wicked. It's from God's perspective how he sees us, what he has done in us and for us. And so that's helpful as we look at this psalm, and it's helpful as we look at the book of Psalms. God is talking about those who are within his covenant and those who are not. And tonight as we look at this psalm, I want to do three things. I want to show you two pictures, I want to show you two processes, and I want to show you two perspectives. You've got to be impressed, I've got three Ps, Gary. Have to be. There's three points, two pictures, two processes, two perspectives. There we go. Do you like it? It's like, a, do you know what the General Assembly's happening this week? I'm trying to make an effort. I'm having coffee with the moderator tomorrow. Uh, you know, I'm going to wear shorts to that as well. So, 
I'm feeling more Presbyterian than normal. There we go. Three Ps. There's two pictures. We're given the picture in the psalm of the chaff and the tree. You know what chaff is? From the city, you might not. From the country, country boy here. I remember going with my grandfather to the field whenever they were bringing in barley and stuff like that there. And there was what they call a threshing machine. You put the barley into it and it kind of... And all the kind of dust came out one end, the chaff, and then the straw came out and the, the heads of barley came out as well. Back in the day, in the olden days, they would use size and they would cut. I probably shouldn't twist too much in this ankle, but do you know what I mean? You like the, it's kind of like flossing, you know. The joke would be better than salt, obviously. Um, they, they would use size and they would cut the barley down and then they would winnow it by throwing it in the air and the chaff, the dust, the useless stuff, the wind would catch it and blow it away and the, the, the grains of barley would fall to the ground. The stuff you keep would fall to the ground. And, and this psalm is talking, it talks about chaff. It's talking a little bit about what is, is useless, but it's, it's more than that. It's talking about the chaff being blown by the wind. The wicked blown by the wind. People whose... Theology and people whose ideology and people whose morality and people whose behavior changes frequently no matter what circumstances they are in. So maybe you're like me, you've got friends who every time they read a new book have got a new idea without actually thinking through it for themselves. Do you remember 15 years ago, everybody read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and all of a sudden everybody was into deconstructing the Bible? Do you remember that? We can't trust this. We've only had it for 2,000 years almost, but Dan Brown's written this book, which must be true. Do you remember that? We all have friends who read a book, they're totally hooked by, totally convinced by. They don't read it discerningly, they're just, wow, that must be true. It must be real. It must be right. James, you're bound to encounter this with your first year students all the time at Bible college. Like chaff blown by the wind, the latest book we've read changes our thinking, our ideas, our behavior, everything. Or at a tribal level, we adopt, we assimilate into the norms of our family and our friends. My parents think this, and I grew up doing this and thinking this, so it must be right. Or you hang out with a group of friends in school or university or in work, and you start to think, well, they all have changed their car this year, so I must need to change my car this year, even though there's nothing wrong with it. Or they're all going in three holidays a year, so that, is that normal? Is that, is that what we're meant to do? now that we're in our 40s or 50s. At a tribal level, we assimilate into the ideas of the people around us without being discerning and thinking for ourselves. At a cultural level, we simply absorb the norms of society and of culture, sometimes undiscerningly without even thinking about it. Here's one for you. And we haven't seen the implications of this yet, but the Secretary of State has announced that there's going to be a new RE or RS curriculum in schools. And it's going to normalize and standardize teaching around certain subjects. And some of that's good, and some of that, I guess, is worrying for us as a church when we think about sexuality and gender and abortion and all of those things. But what's really interesting about it is they're teaching things as fact and not ethics anymore. 
So on the subject of abortion, one of the things they're talking about doing is teaching if you need an abortion, this is how you go about it, this is where you go for it, without ever putting on the table for the young people to think, is it right or wrong to do? So we're going, if we're not careful and wise as a church and as Christian parents and Christian grandparents, we're going to have young people growing up in a world not thinking ethically about those decisions, simply seeing them as normal to do. Shaped by whatever way the wind blows. The picture of the chaff versus the picture of the tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whatever it does prospers. I love that picture of the tree that is planted. And it's not inflexible because a tree that I was told this by a gardener, a horticulturist, a tree that is inflexible, that is too stiff and rigid, when the wind blows strong enough, it breaks. It becomes brittle, it breaks. But a mature tree has a flexibility to it. When you look at trees in the forest and the wind blowing strong, the trees bend and move with the wind, but they are rooted in place. They're open to listening and learning and loving and thinking, but they are rooted in their core ideas and their core identity. I love that picture of a life that is dependable and rooted and planted by streams of living water. Every time you see that in the Psalms and often throughout the Bible, it's not talking about, you know, the river Con or the river whatever running down. Uh, it's not talking about the lagon. It's talking about the Holy Spirit, a life that is rooted with deep roots feeding off the Holy Spirit, nourished and nurtured, being kept soft-hearted and tender, but rooted and strong in place. We're told that tree, that life, is fruitful and purposeful. Whatever it does prospers. It yields its fruit in season. It brings life to others, whether that's through church or through career or through family. It's a life that brings blessing to others. Other people's lives are better because this person who is planted like a tree, feeding on the Holy Spirit, is near them and around them, and their life makes other people's lives better. The chaff versus the tree. Who do you want to be? Your ideas changing like with the wind are planted and rooted. Two pictures and two processes. It's just really conventional language of the world and the word. Um, one of Lara and my favorite places in the world is up at White Rocks. Uh, don't have to go very far. You know, upside Portrush. Uh, that's where we got engaged. So it was. I got down on one knee. I can't even act it out now because of this gammy boot. But I got down on one knee at sunset at White Rocks, positioned her so I could keep one eye on her and one eye on the surfers to see what was going on out in the water. Will you marry me? Give her the ring. All the romantic stuff. Um, and thankfully she said yes in, what are we, 18 years now? Got it right. It wasn't in my notes, got it right, it's good. One of the most beautiful places and sentimental places for us is White Rocks. And if you walk along there, you see the, the white cliffs that are just absolutely stunning. If you go paddleboarding or canoeing or a boat trip on further around there, you see caves and oh, it's so, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. 
And you go back the next day and it looks exactly the same. And you go back the next day, it looks exactly the same. You go back the next day, it looks exactly the same. Go back in 10,000 years, it'll look slightly different because every day the elements and the salt water and the tidal um, stuff is eroding and is shaping and is changing and is evolving the landscape around that beach, that, that coastal point. And you don't see it day by day, but over time you realize you're being changed to look like something. It's been changed to look like something else. And, and my question here when I think about two processes is what do you allow to shape your heart? Because whether you like it or not, your heart is being shaped. Whether you like it or not, your ideas are being shaped. What do you allow to shape your heart? But let's look at the world. I'm just going to use what the psalm, I'm not going to go beyond what the psalmist says. He talks about those who walk in the counsel of the wicked. Again, wicked is not a moral statement about good and bad. Wicked here is people who are outside of God's covenant, who are whose lives and ideas and thinking is not, by, not being shaped by the word of God and by God's design. So those who walk in the counsel of the wicked. He's talking about their worldview. He's talking about their ethical framework. So for example, if you were looking at the, the subject of abortion on this, and you could look at any subject at all, but what might... Uh, a worldview that is worldly look like and feel like there? Well, it might devoid or take any sense of humanized language out of the conversation that the, the cells in a woman's body during the time of pregnancy are not the most beautiful little baby full of a potential life that, that could grow up and get married and do wonderful things, but it's simply a collection of cells that are multiplying not even to use the word of fetus, but simply just a collection of cells. That's the way the world is pushing us to think on that subject. And somebody who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who is not shaped by words, maybe, just maybe, that is one of the things that they are being encouraged to Think about in their ethical framework and their worldview. We could talk about a million different things from consumerism to individuality to you name it. What is shaping your worldview? What is shaping your ideas about ethics? Whose voice gets to speak into that space to determine what is right and wrong for you? What is normal and not normal for you? who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who stands in the path of sinners, the path that sinners take. That is talking about the footsteps of people who are ungodly, who are outside of the covenant, who are living a different way. What is their behavior, their choices, their identity? My mom used to use this wee expression with me when I was growing up and as a teenager picking friends who were leading me astray and I was getting in all kinds of trouble. She would say, Gareth, show me your friends. I'll tell you your name. The link between identity and behavior is really close. And then thirdly, the psalmist talks about and sits in the seat of mockers. You ever noticed how, how people who have really strong ideas about things, sometimes, not always, can be quite sarcastic and cynical and disrespectful of other people's ideas. 
You ever see that? Look down on and disrespect and disregard somebody who thinks something different. What we see here in the, the psalm is this progressive decline away from God. It starts with thinking differently because the world that you live in that is shaping you like the wind blowing, like the tide lapping, starts to shape the way you think and you're undiscerning about it, you don't even realize it. And as your thinking changes, so your behavior changes. You think that's right, that's wrong, so I can do this, but I can't do this. And then maybe, just maybe, not only does your thinking change, not only does your behavior change, you start to look down on and think less of people who have different ideas than you. Have you noticed how people's perception of church has changed over the past 20 years? So it used to be the church was at the center of society and heralded as a, as a force, a place of safety. Churches where you go when you're in trouble, where you turn to. Talking about for people who aren't Christians, you're outside of that covenant relationship with God. And then all of a sudden, church was the, sort of perceived in the media as, do you remember Harold Bishop and Neighbors? Do you remember Neighbors? And if you, if you're all too holy to watch Neighbors, are you? Do you remember Neighbors? Do you remember Harold Bishop? He was a bit kind of, a bit buffly and a bit buffoony and a bit sort of people kind of laughed. He was nice, but they laughed a little bit at him. Or Ned Flanders and the Simpsons. So church moved from this place of, of safety and trust and respect to the kind of bumbly uncle who you, know, you liked and you tolerated. You didn't really want to hang out with, but you liked and you tolerated. And it wasn't dangerous, it was just a bit uncool. So when you see church portrayed now in the media, you see it portrayed as the place where sectarianism happens and where homophobia happens and where child abuse has happened and has been covered up. And these are the stories that are portrayed in the media when church is talked about. There has been this progressive decline away from God and how people think and perceive. Samus talks about those who walk in the counsel of the wicked, who stand in the path of sinners, who sit in the place of of mockers. But, the psalmist says, those who delight in the law of the Lord, who meditate on that law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. The way of the world, the way of the word of God. Back then, it was the Torah, the first five books in the Bible, but the sense was it was bigger than that. It was people who, who trusted God's word and trusted God's words, if you like. We, we can now take the whole Bible in that context as a place of reading, but also a place of listening. It's also a place of encounter with the living God. And the psalmist says, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Do you delight in the Bible? Delighting in the Bible starts with a choice to pick it up or turn it on if it's on your device. It's kind of as simple as that. It starts with a choice. You don't fall in love with the Bible. You don't delight in the Bible until you start to spend time 
in the Bible. You can think it's a good idea. You have a Sunday school teacher who told you to do it. Your minister says it's a good idea. But until you actually make a choice to pick it up, you're never, ever going to delight in it. So you make a choice to open it. You make a choice to read it. You make a choice to trust it. Maybe you even make a choice to love the Bible because you love the person the Bible points to. You don't love the Bible for the Bible's sake. You don't delight in the Bible for the sake of the words on the page. You delight in the Bible because this is the word of the living God. The God who knows you and loves you and has chosen you and has sent his son to die on a cross so you can be forgiven, you can be brought into his family, adopted, blessed, in the words of the psalmist. That God who has given everything for you, who has done everything for you, who loves you beyond what you can even begin to put words around, invites you to love him as well, invites me to love him as well. And part of that loving of God is choosing to open the Bible and choosing to delight in the Bible because we delight in the one who spoke the Bible into existence. We delight in the one the Bible points to. We delight in the one that we encounter as we sit and read the Bible. Day and night. Day and night, he talks about. What's your relationship with the Bible? How are you doing with it? No judgment. Honest space. How are you doing with the Bible? Are you trusting it? Are you reading it regularly? Are you finding a rhythm, a pattern that works for you? I had coffee with a guy this week who's kind of my age, goes to a different church, and we were talking. He was talking about, how do I teach my kids how to read the Bible when nobody's actually taught me? I've heard a million sermons, he said, about I should read the Bible, but no one's actually sat down with me and said, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. Just in case you've never been told that, let me give you a really simple way to read the Bible. If you were to take this first psalm tomorrow morning with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and just sit for a moment in silence and recognize, God, I believe that not only is this book in front of me, but your spirit is here with me. So speak to me as I read these words. And just take a moment to acknowledge God's presence. And then three, six verses, read through them slowly. And then pause for a second and just reflect. And then read through them again. Think to yourself, I wonder what this psalm is about, all of it together. And just as you turn those thoughts over in your head, do it in conversation with God and maybe expect him to speak back to you in that space. And then maybe... Go back to the third time, and so it's only six verses. You read it in a minute. Just read it again slowly, and if it, one of the verses really resonates with you, just stay with that verse. Okay, what are you saying to me, God, now in this moment, in this verse? And just read it, and reflect on it, and read it, and reflect on it. And try to discern what God is saying to you that verse. It might be a lesson or it might be an invitation or hey, it might simply be that he wanted to catch your attention because he wanted to spend five minutes with you. And as you delight in him, you discover that he delights in you as well. The psalmist says, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates 
on a day and night, meditating on scripture. It's not like the idea of, excuse me, Eastern meditation where you try to empty your mind and empty yourself of everything so you become just like a floating space in the universe and achieve your zen. It's about filling your life with the word of God. It's about taking that psalm or that verse or that sentence and bringing it in and turning it over in your mind and your heart, maybe even memorizing it if your memory allows. And recognizing God speaking to you and meeting with you in the process. Not so you will have had an experience for five minutes out of your 24 hours, but so that you will learn what God's voice sounds like so in the rest of your 24 hours as you're washing the car and walking the dog and bringing the kids to school and going to work and doing all those things, getting the shopping in, that verse might come back to your mind or another verse might come back to your mind or a picture might come or a word might come to your mind for you or for somebody else, but you recognize that feels like it did this morning when God was speaking to me when I was delighting in his word. And maybe you discover what it is to encounter God throughout your day and not simply in the five minutes, 10 minutes of devotional time that you spend. Blessed is the one who delights in the law, who meditates on it day and night. It's not about having a really good quiet time it's about having a really good friendship with the living God. To pictures, chaff and tree, to processes being shaped by everything or primarily being shaped by God and by his word. And then finally, two perspectives. Um, one of the most popular songs to play at a funeral, at a non-Christian songs I'm talking about, because probably you go for Psalm 23 or something like that, if you're going for Christian songs, but what do you reckon is the most popular non-Christian song to play at a funeral? Yes. Say it loudly with confidence. Own the answer. His way. <laughs> Very good. Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. It's a cracking song. And Frank's a bit of a cool cat, isn't he? You know, we, you know, we all like the idea of when we go out in the tux, we can have the tux open at the end of the night with the tie hanging down both sides. You know what I mean? It was good. Frank's a bit of a cool cat, and his song, My Way, is a beautiful song. Captures something of the aspiration of this age, of consumerism, of individuality, of living your best life, of you do you, of be the best version, take every opportunity. All of those things sound really great to us. And occasionally, more than occasionally, I'm asked, can we play My Way? at the end of a funeral, and we try to accommodate people as best we can, so often we'll say yes, but I'm really struck what happens at the end of the song, My Way. You know what happens at the end of the song, My Way? It finishes. And there's nothing. It just stops. And that's it. And it's a weary, painful silence. This text that introduces the book of Psalms and introduces people who live within the covenant of God and respond to his grace and those that don't and live my way. It talks about a judgment and we're, we're not good at this stuff. We've kind of 
I don't know, Northern Irish Christianity feels like it's gone, full pendulum swing to every sermon's about judgment. To, there's no sermons about judgment unless Deborah preaches and then she did a great job with it last time. Um, but this psalm finishes and it introduces the whole 150 odd psalms. And the psalms have been the songbook for 3,000 years of God's people. And so what's in here feels pretty significant and pretty important. And the psalm finishes, contrasts the chaff with the tree, the blessed with the wicked, and finishes with not so the wicked. They are like chaff that blow, the wind blows away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The psalm talks about a judgment and that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And we have to hold on to the truth that, that one day Jesus, who came into the world 2,000 years ago and walked around in the dust of Palestine and told the most incredible stories and gave the most incredible sermons and healed people and even raised some folk from the dead, and who died on the cross and who rose again on the third day and then 40 days later ascended into heaven and then a few days after that the Holy Spirit came the church was born that Jesus is going to come back and when he comes back we're told there's going to be a judgment that he's not going to come as the gentle miracle working teacher he's going to come as judge and the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And again, it's not talking about morality. It's not talking about the good and the bad. Because if it was saying those who are bad or those who have sinned will not stand in the judgment, guys, we're all stuffed. The Bible says all of us have sinned. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is stand still and look in the mirror for long enough until you feel uncomfortable. All of us have sinned. All of us are broken. All of us are, are, are separated from God. The wicked is not a moral statement about good and bad. It's part of the dual language, the polarized language that talks about those who are within the covenant of God and those who are outside the covenant of God. It says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Maybe a different way to say that is those who are not known by God and have not responded to his grace will not stand in the judgment. Only those who have said, Jesus, I, I see you and I believe in you and I am responding to your offer of grace. I'm turning from this way of living and thinking to you. Forgive me and come into my life. And he brings you into his family. He adopts you into his family. He brings you from darkness into light. He brings you from outside the covenant into the covenant from the place of wickedness into the place of blessedness. And those who have said, I'll do it my way, Jesus says, okay. But those who have said, Jesus, I'm going to do it your way. In that place of judgment, he says, what I did on the cross, my way, covers you. You are forgiven. You are covered. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. 
nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. But only those who have responded to the grace and the invitation of Jesus, who have given their lives to him. And I guess as I read this last part of this psalm, as we talk about two pictures and two processes and then two perspectives, I I think it's important to live our lives with an anticipation of eternity. I, I, I think, yeah, we should be fully present in the world around us, loving and serving and helping and praying but we should also have one eye, not both eyes, one eye on the fact that one day Jesus is going to come back. One day there's going to be a judgment. One day heaven and hell will become lived realities. Because if you live with one eye on the here and now and one eye on eternity, it changes your relationship to the truth. We live in a world where truth is relative. Nobody really questions the fact that our young people are, are Christians anymore because they, they live in a world where you can be a Christian and believe whatever you want, but actually, I can not be, I can be an atheist or I can be a Muslim or I can be a Hindu or I can just take a whole pile of little bits from the smorgasbord of worldviews and religions and create something just for myself because it's my truth. But if you're living with a conviction and one eye on eternity knowing that this is a reality and this is before us, it changes your relationship with truth. Because no longer is it okay for you to say to your friends, it's okay for you to believe whatever you believe. You don't need to judge them for it, but it gives you an encouragement to pray for them, to invite them, to share your faith with them, to long for them to believe what you believe. It's not arrogant when it's real. It's not arrogant when it's true. Living with an anticipation of eternity changes your relationship to truth. It changes your relationship to life. Do you remember the tree? It yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever it does prospers. The tree doesn't grow apples for itself. Do you ever see a tree eating an apple? produces its fruit for others. If we live with an anticipation of eternity, if we live hungry for that relationship with God that we're going to have for all eternity, if we live deeply connected to both word and spirit, then we will live a life that is fruitful and purposeful and we will be a blessing to others. Your neighbors should grieve and lament and weep when a for sale sign goes up at your house. Because they think they were the best neighbor. They were the best neighbor. Your kids, whenever um, the birthday invitations go out and somebody in their class gets a birthday invitation from your kid, the parent of that kid should go, oh, class, I love the fact that Toby's friends with whoever because he gets to go and hang out and be in Sarah's house and it's just such a wonderful environment and a kind and caring. You know, your life, sorry, sorry, I just picked you out there, but your life should be a blessing to other people because you're connected into truth and you're connected into God. You're connected into his spirit. 
Blessed are those who live with an anticipation of eternity. It changes our relationship to truth. It changes our relationship to life. Finally, it changes our relationship to death. Paul tells us that we should not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It doesn't say we shouldn't grieve. When death comes, it is horrendous. It is horrendous. Even at 90-something years old, having lived a full life, when you can go, I, I can see they've been brought home to heaven. I can see all. It still leaves a hole in your life. There's no question about that. But if you live with an anticipation of eternity, if you live with one eye on heaven, one eye on the new heavens and new earth, and death comes to somebody you love, it allows you to carry hope into that space of grief. We're going to sing one more song as we bring things, as we land in here tonight. There's no strong challenge at the end of tonight's sermon. There's a, I, I, guess, I guess if you're not a Christian, I'm going to pray in a moment and give you space to give your life to Jesus if you want to. I don't guess. I'm definitely going to do that. And I guess there's an invitation. Maybe you need to press in a little bit more and think about your relationship with the Bible. Maybe there's something in that as well. But what I want to do simply, there's a picture I want to put up on the screen. Can we go to the next slide? Is it working? No, sorry, Nelly. You're, you're double jaw. No, jump back and forward. Is it working? Go again. That one there. Okay. What we're going to do, we're going to play a little bit of music. There's three pictures on the screen. And simply, what I want you to do is to reflect on those three pictures. One's a sapling and one's a tree out of season. And one's a tree that is flourishing. And I just want you to ask God to show you where you are at the minute. It's not a judgy thing. It's just allow him to say, listen, maybe you're in this season. Maybe this is where you are. And there's a conversation of what it looks like to come back to him, to delight in him and delight in his word. To be fed and nourished by his Holy Spirit to move into that place of flourishing again and maybe you're somewhere in between some of these pictures but just spend a little bit of time just reflecting, meditating allowing the spirit to speak to you
can take the words of my prayer. You can simply ignore this and stay in the space that you're in. That's fine. But if you want to give your life to Jesus tonight or if you want to recommit your life, maybe you've been distant or it's felt, things felt far away and you felt tonight, I need to, I need to come home. Just pray this prayer with me. Just repeat the words. Make them your own. Jesus, I feel a bit empty. I feel a bit lost. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the theology, but I believe in you. believe your death on the cross is the key to the forgiveness of my sin and guilt and shame and the doorway to me living the richest life with you both now and for eternity in heaven and so Jesus I'm sorry and I turn to you Allow your spirit to come into my life now and make me your child. Blessed, part of your family, your forever family. And for others then who want to go deeper, who wants more of God, who want to have a clearer focus on, on God, on His Word. Holy Spirit, come and capture hearts and minds and motivations. And fix our eyes on Jesus and don't let them drift not just in this moment but right throughout this week right throughout our lives help us to be on this progressive journey of going deeper with you Lord and knowing your, you more and hearing your voice with more clarity and delighting in your word and ultimately God falling in love with you completely that you are our deepest desire And so the words of our final song are our prayer. We're going to keep our seats as we sing, purify my heart.